Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. It's politics with Amy Walter on the takeaway. I appeal to all of you to get in this great revolution that is sweeping this nation. Get in and stay in the streets of every city, every village and hamlet of this nation until true freedom come, until the revolution of 1776 is complete. We must get in this revolution and complete the revolution. Last Friday, the world learned of the loss of Congressman John Lewis. Lewis was a hero to many, an icon of the civil rights movement. He was dubbed the conscience of the Congress, where he served for more than 30 years. In the week following his death, we've seen countless tributes across social media and from the House floor. John Lewis always took the high road. John Robert Lewis, who was a dancer, a man who loved to have fun, but was convicted for the right to vote. Very few can can claim to have altered the course of American history the way that John did. Loved every person he met. He looked them in the eye. Can't you hear him? My brother, my sister, he would say. He always wanted and he did inspire them to take that baton and to run the next lap of the race for justice and equality. There's a growing movement for Alabama's Edmund Pettus Bridge to be renamed in his honor. And on Wednesday, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act was introduced in the Senate. All deserved recognition for a man whose determination kept him fighting for 80 years. We wanted to understand what he was like as a legislator and a colleague. So we assembled a virtual roundtable of lawmakers who served in the Congressional Black Caucus along with Lewis. This is Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence. My name is Lauren Underwood. I'm the Congresswoman from the Illinois 14th Congressional District. I'm Jim Clyburn, House Majority Whip. I started by asking Congressman James Clyburn to tell me what he remembers most about working with John Lewis. I remember the most about John uh, early days. John and I met in 1960 when we were founding members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. On the day we met, it was also the evening that I first met Martin Luther King Jr. And my earliest memory of John was sitting with King, sitting down around 10 o'clock in the evening and not leaving the room until around 4 the next morning. And so I had my Saul Paul uh, transformation in the company of John Lewis. And we maintained that friendship all the way up until his death. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's it's a joy to work here with him for uh, 27 years. My real memories of John occurred while we were college students and during the Freedom Rides. In fact, his first, the first time he was ever physically assaulted was in South Carolina in a little town of Rock Hill. And after that assault, he was brought to my hometown of Sumter, where one of my mentors uh, later became a mentor of his. Nicole McCann arranged for him to come back to D.C. because he was injured uh, during that assault. And John and I talked about that a lot over the years, and we compared what we were doing back in the 60s with what was going on here with Black Lives Matter. And we were both very concerned 
as to whether or not today's Black Lives Matter movement uh, will get hijacked the way SNCC was hijacked back in the 1960s. Burn, baby, burn, destroyed us. That kind of sloganary we were fearful of when we first heard defund the police. And we talked about that. He spoke out strongly against that, and so did I. Congresswoman Lawrence, if you could weigh in on your experience with him, and we're also looking to get a sense of what he was like as a legislator, you know, in reading through some of the obituaries in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the Washington Post, they say, you know, he wasn't known for taking a technical approach to policy, cutting deals in the back rooms. So what was he like as a legislator? Well, I define him more as a mentor, just taking people under the wing. He was zero focused on the challenges of the least of us. He would tell us new people who came to make sure to keep your eye on the prize and to fight and know that our battle for civil rights was not over. What about you, Congresswoman Underwood? You, as the newest member here, I wanted to get your first impression of meeting Congressman Lewis. Was it when you first came to Washington or had you met him earlier? I met Congressman Lewis in 2006 when I was a Congressional Black Caucus Foundation summer intern. I was Mm. interning in Senator Obama's office. And Congressman Lewis was uh, generous to participate in a speaker series. We had an opportunity to meet and hear from a variety of CBC members. There was probably 40 of us that were sophomores, juniors, seniors in college, young 19, 20 year old African-American students. And he told us about his lifetime of service and he answered our questions and gave us the familiar words about getting in good trouble and necessary trouble and keeping the faith and you know, continuing to stand up for what was right. And I was just awed and really stunned that here was this giant and he would take the time to come and talk to us. And it's just a moment that has stuck with me over these last almost 15 years. And so when I got elected to Congress, you know, I had a chance to get him, get to know him personally. It's something that continues to just blow my mind a little bit. He is a supporter of our work on the Black Maternal Health Caucus, and um, it, it was a joy to have him as a partner in that legislation. I want to talk about the the hole that he's leaving in Congress and also in the CBC. I mean, this year alone, three veteran members of the CBC, Elijah Cummings, John Conyers, now John Lewis, have passed away. And I would love to start with you, Congressman Clyburn, on the hole that they leave. Who fills that? And what is the future, do you think, for the Congressional Black Caucus, which is close to turning 50? Well, I think we have a tremendous future. I've always been a little bit concerned when I hear people refer to those activities back in the 60s as the civil rights movement. Mm. The fact of the matter is we should put an S on that because there will always be civil rights movements. The Stunner Rebellion was a civil rights movement. Denmark Vesey's efforts in 1822 was a civil rights movement. The Niagara movement was all about civil rights. It's what created or was the forerunner to the NAACP. So there's always going to be a civil rights movement. 
And so what we do, though, is look for leadership whenever the issues arise, uh, when a moment, as we say, becomes a movement, somebody will rise head and shoulders above all others. And that's what happened with John Lewis. Uh, Elijah Cummings, just a great person. He, he was not known uh, for civil rights per se. He was the consummate legislator uh, and he moved an agenda uh, unlike uh, any others. And so was John Conyers, mm -hmm. just an outstanding guy. I learned a lot from John. John was a, a great tactician. Uh, and so everybody has their roles to play. We all respond uh, to our strengths, uh, and John did it as well as anybody. Congresswoman Underwood, you're the youngest African-American woman ever elected to Congress. So you are literally the next generation here. I don't know if you also feel that there's somewhat of a burden or challenge in front of you. And what do you see as we go forward with so many new members coming in, new members of color, and the role that you see them playing as we move forward? I do certainly have a perspective of a different generation of leadership. I recognize the vast contributions of the CBC over the last several decades, recognize the important role that they've played um, as the conscience of the Congress, and recognize that oftentimes Congress moves slower than the American people. And if we need an example of this, we can look at what's occurred since Memorial Day and the vast change in public opinion that's taken place around uh, the need to swiftly address America's legacy of racism and white supremacy and embracing um, the calls to actions affiliated with the Black Lives Matter movement. And so, you know, I think that our generation of young elected officials certainly recognize our history and the legacies and sacrifices of those who've come before us and then also recognize the fierce urgency of the work that we have yet to do. Um, we have different tools available to us. Um, and I would say that our generation is socially connected in ways that, you know, others haven't been at the same time you know, public support is with us on these issues of voting rights. They're, the public is with us on the issue of equality and justice and reform. And so, you know, while the CBC can be the policy lead for many of these uh, legislative uh, initiatives here in the Congress, a lot of the energy around the country and certainly in my district is coming from a diverse coalition. I think that that um, evolution marks a dramatic shift in our country, and it allows us as legislators to uh, continue to pursue our agenda aggressively with the expectation of broad support among our colleagues and the expectation of bipartisan action. So no longer is this just a CBC initiative for, you know, equality, justice, and, you know, ending racism. No, this is like making America better and the American people are with us. And I think that in this moment, this, the CBC in 2020 is, you know, at the very fore 
of um, the move for change. Now, one of the criticisms of the CBC, and this has been coming up recently, is that they've endorsed white incumbents over African-American challengers who challenged them in primary. Some of them have been younger, Jamal Bowen, for example, against Elliot Engel up in New York. Do you think that the policy should be changed, that there should either be let's stay out of primaries or that the CBC should be encouraging new members who are members of color to come to Congress any way they can and support them? This is Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence. I, I want it to be clear that we have a pack. We are the Congressional Black Caucus, and we are not the political arm. So there is a pack. We always encourage young people, I mean, continuously through the foundation, through the mentorships and the um, internships that we sponsor to encourage African-Americans to be involved politically. And so I'm proud of the record that the Congressional Black Caucus has. Our annual conference where we highlight the legislative process and the outcomes and, and the achievement of the Black Caucus. We are not the political arm, but I can tell you we have a proud record of endorsing, and not endorsing, but supporting and mentoring African-Americans to enter into the political spectrum. Right. I had just read in a, an article, I think it was in Politico, uh, a couple weeks ago, where you said you would encourage the CBC to withhold endorsements in certain races if there's a qualified African-American challenger running against an incumbent. I was speaking to the PAC right. that when we have African-Americans uh, who are in the race, that we look at withholding our endorsements. But I'm one voice. That's my opinion. When I ran for my race, I was not endorsed by the PAC but I had numerous members independently who supported me. And that happens all the time. The PAC is the political arm and they have their own process for endorsements. Congressman Clyburn, I want to go to you for a minute because I want to talk about the issues right now that are in front of the country and certainly where the CBC has been front and center. And that's the police reform bill that passed the House at the end of June. It doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere in the Senate. And there is talk now that let's say that Democrats pick up the not just the White House, but the Senate and still control the House in 2021. If that does happen, um, do you think that pressure is going to build in the Senate to eliminate the filibuster so that a bill like this, this policing bill and other policies surrounding racial disparities will ultimately be passed and then signed into law? Well, I think the principle bill for us to do something, I don't know if I would go as far as to eliminate the filibuster. Uh, I would leave that up to the Senate. Um, Having been a victim of filibuster, you know, I was around. I think it was my senior year in high school uh, when Strom Thurmond set the filibuster record against the civil rights bill. Uh, I've also been here uh, to see the filibuster eliminated from certain uh, judgeships in the Senate, and it's yielding us some of the most reactionary judges, and not just reactionary, but according to the American Bar Association, 
people who are unqualified. And it's the elimination of the filibuster that has caused that. If we had the filibuster, then we would have been able to stop those judges. So it all depends on what time it is as to where you come down on, on that spectrum. So I, I say to people all the time, uh, we have to be very, very careful. Uh, the same things that make you laugh in this business uh, can make you cry. But uh, having said that, uh, justice in policing, I've not given up on that bill. We've passed it in the, um, in the House. It's in the Senate. Carter Booker and Kamala Harris are working that bill. Uh, I've been working back channels with the Senate, uh, trying to get to uh, common ground on legislation. We need to outlaw the chokehold. Uh, we need to get rid of uh, no-knock uh, interest. And I think that um, people are understanding that. And if we can find uh, some common ground on it, I think we ought to go ahead and do it. Because I would not... Um, run the risk of saying, well, let's wait until the next Congress uh, when we can get rid of the filibuster. I'm not too sure that that will happen. So let's do what we can. Uh, hopefully it'll be enough for everybody to vote for uh, and then see where we goes, where we go after the year. So you think there's enough time to do the next round of stimulus as well as pass something like this before you all leave for the fall? All the time is there. The way is there. We've, we've just sent a $3 trillion bill over in the Senate. The House has done its work with the HEROES Act. All the Senate's got to do is come to grips. Uh, in fact, they have problems, the Republicans, uh, among themselves. So all the wherewithal is there. We've passed the Justice and Policing Act. We've passed the HEROES bill with $3 trillion, $1 trillion of that going to state and local governments. And the Senate's now talking about doing something without regards to state and local governments. Uh, so I, there's nothing really left uh, in this arena, both these arena, uh, for the House to do. Mm. Uh, and the, so the way is clear. The Senate has to develop the will, and that's what's missing. Congressman Underwood, I want to um, ask you about the campaign coming up in Vice President Biden, and I'm sure you are getting asked a lot about your opinion about who he should pick potentially as his vice presidential running mate. He has said he's picking a woman, of course. Do you think that it is important for him to pick a woman of color? Is that going to be critical? It's absolutely critical. And tell me why. Because women of color uh, are a vibrant, engaged group. We have, uh, in terms of our segment of the electorate, we have outstanding and qualified candidates um, that are capable. They are prepared to do the job on day one and um, have a unique ability to connect across segments of the electorate from coast to coast. And I think that we have a very robust list of women that have been supposedly on this short list. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't envy the decision that the vice president has to make, um, being friends and colleagues with many of these women. And so um, I'm very excited about their leadership and, you know, look forward to, you know, election day when uh, we can all vote for change in this country. Would there be a consequence, do you think, for Biden to pick a 
woman who is not a woman of color and not a black woman? Um, I don't know. Um, but I think that this has been an open and public conversation for so long. I take him at his word that he's committed to um, moving in that direction. I'm a woman of color. I have been surrounded by these amazing women who are being vetted. They are absolutely qualified. Would I be over the top in my lifetime to see a black woman serve as the vice president of the United States? But I, I am putting trust in Joe Biden to pick the best person to serve in his administration as his vice president. And I will celebrate a woman making history of serving as her first vice president. I want to thank all three of you for taking this time to come and talk to me about all of this. Please stay safe. And hopefully soon enough, we'll be able to see each other in person. You be safe. And to everyone who's listening, wear your mask. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, Amy. Thank you. Lauren Underwood represents the 14th Congressional District in Illinois. Brenda Lawrence represents Michigan's 14th Congressional District, and James Clyburn represents the 6th Congressional District of South Carolina. All three Democrats are members of the Congressional Black Caucus. John Lewis will lie in state in the U.S. Capitol next week. On this week's On the Media, does the rise of X signal the fall of traditional right-wing outlets? You don't have to have this website and a link that people have to click on. You can just say stuff and you can get attention. You know, you don't need to be Breitbart to do that anymore. Also, what does decolonization really mean? On this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. We just heard about the legacy and influence of John Lewis from some of his colleagues. For more on the role of the Congressional Black Caucus, a nearly 50-year-old organization, and what the loss of three of its heavyweights means for its future, I talked with John Bresnahan, Congressional Bureau Chief for Politico. I mean, it's nine months since Elijah Cummings passed away, and now and now Mr. Lewis is gone. And I do think that is, you know, very much on the minds of CBC members and the Democratic Caucus and the House as a whole. I mean, Elijah Cummings was enormously well-respected, and he was close to Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I mean, this is somebody who was kind of Pelosi's fireman in some sense. She brought him into oversight when they were still in the minority to help defend President Obama, then President Obama. And then, you know, when they became in the majority, he was chair, and they were investigating Donald Trump. And you know, Elijah Cummings had this gravitas and he could deal with it. And Mr. Lewis was not, he wasn't as active legislatively, let's say, as Elijah Cummings, but he was this tremendous figure with this dignity and this uh, uh, gravitas that was uh, really hard. I don't think anybody else in the Congress could match it. And when Lewis spoke, everyone listened on both sides of the aisle. You know, it's hard to even describe outside of Congress what the, the loss of these two figures means. And then you go back and you look at a John Conyers and the end of John Conyers, the end of his career over 50 years was uh, was, was a very sad moment. But he was a very powerful figure, the first African-American to chair the Judiciary Committee. I mean, I can remember talking to Mr. Conyers 
about when he got elected in Congress in 1968. He was the first black member on judiciary. And they, the chairman at the time wouldn't even, you know, they didn't even deal with freshmen in the 60s. He, John Conyers actually hosted a radio show in Washington because he had so much time on his hands. <laughs> Because, you know, freshmen there were, you know, they were accessories, especially a minority, uh, an African-American member. He was just, you know, you have plenty of time. Just come in and we'll tell you how to vote and vote. To to go from that to chairman of the committee was an amazing leap and it took decades, but he was able to do it. And now we have an entire generation of, of new members coming in, members of color, those coming into the CBC who have been forged in a very different reality, the Trump presidency, and a time when, you know, you can have an individual brand. It is interesting you talk about, you see somebody like Ayanna Presley, or you see mm-hmm. someone like Ilhan Omar, who are both, who are members of the CBC, but as you said, they have their own brand, and they have their own national audience, and they're able to reach above the media in some ways, or directly to these constituencies back home and nationally that they're talking to. And it is it is interesting to see that because the CBC for, for decades was really focused on seniority. The more veteran members were who you look to for guidance and mentorship. And these younger members are coming in and they, they have Twitter and social media and they're able to speak past the media directly to voters. And it's a fascinating time and it's fascinating to see how that is playing out in the CBC. I mean, there were some issues with Ilhan Omar when she started as a freshman. She made some comments that were seen as anti-Semitic. The first time she did this controversy erupted in 2019, she was very strongly defended by the CBC. And then the second time, I think there were some CBC members who were saying, you know, uh, you know, enough of this. She should have learned her lesson the first time. So it was interesting to see that dynamic play out there. So it's just, it is the, the CBC is evolving like the Congress and dealing with some of these members who come in and are stars. John, you uh, helped write a piece the other week in talking about the issue of police reform and the role the CBC is playing in pushing that forward. And, and the headline on it was, we can't flunk this moment. Right? Here we are at this moment of racial reckoning. We have police violence issues roiling the country, um, the pressure on the CBC to get something, not just through the House, of course, which they did, but to get it signed into law. How is that going? And what do you think happens is something is something going to get to the president's desk by the end of this year i don't know the answer to that question right now it doesn't seem likely but we'll have to see how november plays out if, if donald trump is reelected, if, if you know would republicans feel comfortable doing something on this issue in a lame duck congress mm. or if joe biden's elected what will happen early in the next congress i mean right now the house has passed a very sweeping police reform bill. The Senate was not able to come to any agreement. So that is on moving forward on a bill. They didn't even vote on anything. They couldn't even agree to move forward. So that is kind of stalled. Right now, Congress is dealing with coronavirus relief issues and then is going to leave in August, then come back in September. There may be some chance that happens. I'm I'm just not sure. Uh, uh, Right now, I would say the chances of that are low. 
But you did see in the house, one of the interesting things that the dynamics played out was the current chairwoman of the CBC, Karen Bass, was able to help uh, move that legislation through the chamber. She did a tremendous job. And, of course, that has raised her profile dramatically. And now she's being talked about as a potential vice presidential candidate. So in some ways you know, the legislation hasn't moved, but the debate and what happened and who was involved has had an impact on the Congress and maybe even national politics. One last thing about where things stand legislatively. Um, They're still back and forth about what this next stimulus package is going to look like. Can you give us a sense, John, of where we are and whether next week is the week when we'll finally see a breakthrough and maybe a vote? We won't probably see a vote next week. In fact, uh, talking about John Lewis, we had mentioned him before. There, there will be John Lewis will lie in state in the U.S. Capitol, and there will be ceremonies for him. And then, of course, on Thursday of next week, there will be his funeral in Atlanta. So I'm not sure we'll see any action mm-hmm. on the coronavirus relief package by that time. We will see the Senate Republicans supposedly introduce their version of the bill. Um, next week, a trillion dollar relief package. They've had problems between the White House and Senate Republicans even agreeing on what should be in it. And at that point, the real negotiations will begin. Uh, We'll see how Democrats react to what the Republican bill is. Um, I've had some White House officials tell me they don't think Democrats, they think Democrats will just, you know, just reject it outright. And then There'll be some jockeying, and then the negotiations will start. I don't think we're going to see a deal until early August, which is a huge problem. I mean, you have the uh, the additional federal unemployment uh, payments are going to be expiring at the end of July. You have an eviction moratorium expiring uh, soon. So, I mean, there's going to be a real financial hit for a lot of Americans if they don't get some action by Congress. And right now, I don't see that happening before the end of the month. They really uh, were really talking about some point in August then. Yeah, I do think we, Congress will do something before they leave for August. When in August it happens is the real question. John Bresnahan, thank you for coming in and talking with us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. John Bresnahan is Congressional Bureau Chief for Politico. And we asked you, what do you look for in young political leaders? My vote for political future for the United States goes to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She is straightforward, she is honest, she is a clear voice that is intelligent. Young political leaders must demonstrate a depth of genuine empathy. They have to show that they understand the concerns of older Americans and acknowledge that bulldozing everything from the past to make room for new values and institutions is not an effective way to build cross-generational consensus. I admire leaders that value empathy and compassion. Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand is an extremely good example of that. She says it takes courage and strength to be empathetic. One more thing from me today. The late Congressman John Lewis was able to look onto a world so broken and full of hate and see possibility and hope. It's hard to feel that kind of hope today. We seem to be caught in an endless cycle, one that prizes conflict above all. The goal isn't in solving problems, but in nurturing a perpetual state of grievance. This is what I worry about most when I think about post-election America. If Biden wins, there's money to be made by keeping those who supported Trump in a constant lather. And there's consequences for those in office who dare to collaborate with those on the other side. 
I've watched a lot of congressional campaign ads this primary season, and the most prominent feature for Republican candidates is a professed fealty to Trump. In other words, even if he's not in office next year, his presence will still be felt. At this point, I'm supposed to put in some sort of cliche that will make us all feel better about the path forward. But I can't. Instead, I think we all need to get used to the idea that there's nothing ahead but a long, messy slog. There can still be change and hope in a slog, but it's not quite as dramatic or fulfilling as many of us would like to see. That's all for us today, but don't worry, there's something extra for you in the podcast feed. My interview with Teresa Greenfield, the Democratic challenger running against Republican Senator Joni Ernst in Iowa. Plus, we check in on school reopening plans in the Hawkeye State. And a big thanks to the folks who put this show together. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jake Cowett is our editor at the WNYC Studios this week. Debbie Daughtry, who's our board op. And Vince Fairchild, our director and sound designer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. And of course, you can call us anytime, 877-8-MY-TAKE, or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.